Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And to begin today, I'd like to thank Eric S. and Samuel G. for their recurring donations to the salon. And I'd also like to thank Andrew G., who also made a direct donation here. And on top of that, Andrew F., Christopher H., and Tia have all become new supporters on Patreon for me, and their donations are also going to go to offsetting some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. Now, before I turn the mic over to Lex Pelger for today's program, I first want to remind you that on Orcas Island, beginning on the 6th of next month, and that's September 6, 2018, for you time travelers who are hearing this in some distant future. <laughs> well, anyhow, from September 6th through the 9th, on Orcas Island, Washington, the Imagine Music and Arts Festival is going to be held. And for what it's worth, this is going to be the first time in four years that I've ventured out to a music festival, and there are several reasons for that. First of all, uh, well, it's going to take place on Orcas Island, and if you've never been there, you should most definitely check it out. To be brief, well, it's my favorite place on earth. The scenery and hiking are fantastic, but it's the people who live there that make the place so special for me. And uh, so I'm really excited about seeing them again and about making some new friends. You know, this is one of those uh, important festivals that are still small enough for you to feel like you've actually taken the whole thing in. And I'll be making a presentation there around noon on Saturday, but the rest of the time I plan on walking around and visiting with as many people as I can. My talk, by the way, is one that I've been thinking about for over a year now, and so I'm pleased to finally be able to present some of these ideas, uh, well, ideas that have been rumbling through my mind lately, uh, and I'd like to share those with some of you who are able to make it through this festival. The title of the presentation I'm going to give is Psychedelics in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. And, uh, well, I think I've come up with a few ideas that you're going to enjoy kicking around yourself. So, if there's any way for you to make it to Orcas Island in early September, I hope that you'll stretch and make it there. And I haven't even mentioned the music. Well, I uh, definitely won't be dancing all night. <laughs> I do plan on uh, taking in Michael Manahan's DJ set for sure. I still have uh, some really fond memories of dancing for hours while he spun his magic at the Oracle gatherings. And uh, I haven't even mentioned the artists who are going to be there, but checking out the festival website, I see that I'm also going to be taken in by some spectacular art as well as the music and the conversation. Uh, hopefully you and I are going to get to visit there as well. Well, now I think it's time to turn over the microphone to Lex Pelger, who's going to introduce today's program, which is one that I'm really looking forward to hearing myself, because Lex's guest is someone whose exploits I've been hearing about for quite some time now. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Adam Strauss is one of my favorite people to hear talk about psychedelics. He's a gifted presenter and stand-up comedian whose one-man show, The Mushroom Cure, is a powerful piece of performance. It's the true story of how he used magic mushrooms for his obsessive-compulsive disorder. I won't give away the end of the show, but it's a fascinating story. 
Adam tells it with humor and emotional honesty. He's not a utopian promising that psychedelics are a panacea, and he wants you to know that this is anecdotal and very personal, but also transformative. I hope you enjoy hearing from Adam Strauss, and I hope you get to see his show someday. As you'll hear, he's in New York City for another month, and we hope there will be a film version of The Mushroom Cure made soon. Here's Adam. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy to be here with my friend Adam Strauss, who is known far and wide for The Mushroom Cure, among his other work. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lex. I, I mean, I don't know how far or why I'm known, but but I suppose if I am known for anything, it is probably The Mushroom Cure. So, uh, so yeah, glad to chat with you. Great. And so before we get to the, the psychedelic side of things, I want to know more about you and comedy. Did you always know that you wanted to be a comedian in this world uh, made sense to you? No, I didn't. I've had a pretty circuitous path really in everything I've done in life, comedy included. So I, um, I had never, unlike most comics, I, you know, I always loved comedy. It was something that I remember as a kid watching like comic relief and stuff and, and really loving it. But, you know, I, I was never a performer. So it just kind of wasn't in, for whatever reason, I didn't, I didn't entertain it as a real possibility until it was a certain point in my life. I'd, I'd had a relationship and um, a particularly significant relationship. And I think that was part of it. I think I was, I had been a musician, um, you know, as you know, a pretty serious musician. I, I, I almost got my master's in jazz studies and then I dropped out uh, and then I'd stopped playing and I felt the need to, I think partially as a result of this breakup, I really wanted to, to create and I, I started playing music again, but it was a bit frustrating. I didn't know any musicians anymore in the New York area. The ones I did know were, you know, more successful and and didn't want to start anything new. And so it was at this point of my life where I was looking for some sort of creative outlet that a friend brought me to my first live comedy show. So even though I I, I loved comedy, uh, you know, it's New York is probably the comedy capital of, of the world. But the audiences are largely tourists. New Yorkers generally don't see a lot of comedy. And I'd lived in New York for years at that point, but I'd never actually seen a live stand-up show. And a friend brought me to a show for the first time, and it just sort of clicked um, that, hey, this is something that that I could do and that I wanted to do. I think I was excited by the – with music, I was a jazz musician. And what I loved about that was the idea that you're – you're spontaneously creating within a certain framework. So you have a song, you have chord changes, but then you're also improvising. And I like the idea also that you were creating with other people, with the other musicians. And comedy, I think it hits some of those same marks in that, you know, you have your material, you have your jokes, but you're you're going to riff off of those. And sometimes you're completely spontaneous, you know, particularly when you're talking to the crowd. And then there is also an element of collaboration, uh, not with other musicians or other comedians generally, you're up there alone, but with the audience, there really is a collaboration. It is a conversation. Their role typically is just laughter, but the rhythm, the quality of their laughter, the quantity of their laughter, that does inform your performance. So I didn't understand all of that at that point in time, but I think in a visceral sense, it just excited me that, oh, I can create with other people and express myself in this way. So that's, uh, that's how it all started. And what was it like to get started and to be up there with the naked microphone and all the expectant faces? 
well, there weren't that many expected faces. When, when you start out, you know, you're performing at open mics. It wasn't like there were big crowds. Uh, it was brutal. I mean, New York City is probably, in, I'd say it's the best and worst place to start comedy. It's the best place because the level of comedy here, I would argue, is better than anywhere. There's there's great comics all over the place. But in terms of the number of great co- comics, I don't think there's more anywhere than in New York City. Uh, so you learn from them. You can see You can see great people any night of the week. But it's a double-edged sword because those people are also your competition. So if you start off performing in a smaller city, you know, Boston, where I grew up, but I, I didn't do comedy then, uh, the talent pool is a lot smaller. There's less competition. There may be less demand, but there's a lot less supply in terms of comics. So it's just easier to get stage time. New York, you're competing against all of the greats. So when you start out, you're really relegated to doing open mics where you're basically just performing for other comics who typically tend not to be a very charitable audience. It's often likened to, uh, you know, magicians doing magic for other magicians comics kind of know what you're trying to do they they know how the sauce is made so they often tend to um not be that impressed and you know there's that acute competition when you're starting out there is a great and supportive community of comedians but i think at the very early stages there's um it's just so brutal you know and so there's tends to be competitions so they're often not very charitable their laughter so it's a it's a tough place to start out and most people i would say 95% of the people who I started doing open mics with, if not more, don't do comedy anymore. So you have to, you have to have some real love of comedy, but you also have to have some sort of desperate need, I think, that repels you past the inevitable failures that you're going to have early on and keeps you doing this to the point that you can get good enough to actually start to make a living at it. So uh, it's, it, it's, yeah, it was, it was a rough education in the early days. Speaking of comics uh, more as the species, what about the idea that you hear where they can often be some of the most sad people, just like the the famous clown who was uh, sad and told to go see himself? Uh, do you see that among comedians? Absolutely. Yes, I do. And it's it's I mean, I, I think there's two there's two facets to that. I think one, I really what I just said earlier about you have to have some desperate need. Uh, that wasn't a joke. I really do think. Um, so comedy laughter is incredibly reinforcing. What I mean by that is to my knowledge, they haven't done, you know, MRI studies, fMRI studies of comedians, you know, and what happens in their brains when, when audiences laugh, I'm sure they have not done that, but if they did, I would wager that you would see the brain light up in a similar pattern that you see, you know, with a heroin addict when they're, when they're taking heroin, there really is the pleasure centers, you know, it's gotta be dopamine implicated there. The pleasure centers just light up or it feels like that when you're on stage and you get laughter. But but again, there's also also especially in the early days a lot of um, a, a lot of humiliation, candidly, um, a, a lot of uh, yeah, you know, you, rejection. It feels it, it does feel like a very personal rejection, especially when you're starting out. You've put all this time into this material, and the audience isn't laughing, or worse, they're you know they're reacting negatively. So again, I think most people who start out, they find the laughter is is incredibly uh, powerful and reinforcing, but the lack of laughter is incredibly painful, and so they quit. So to get past that pain, you really do have to have some need for that validation, that reinforcement that keeps you going through the rough times. And so I, I guess I'm saying, um, yeah, in a sense, I think there has to be some some void you're trying to fill to do this. Now, maybe I'm just projecting my own experience. Maybe that's not true of all comics, but I don't know. Having met a lot of comics, I would say that, yeah, they, they are trying to sate some, some 
pretty primal need in doing this. And of course it doesn't work. Uh, and you realize that at a certain point and, and that's okay because then, you know, there's still the, I get a lot of joy from comedy, even though I know it's not going to, you know, save me or, or, or make up for the fact that I didn't have a prom date or maybe my mother didn't hold me enough or, or, or those sort of things. Um, but so I, I do think there's some sort of, some sort of need that comics have, uh, probably common to all performers. But, you know, the thing about comedy is it is so immediately reinforcing, right? If you're writing a book, I'm sure it feels good to read, you know, positive reviews. And if you see it on the New York Times bestseller list, but that's a very delayed form of gratification. And one thing we know from addiction studies is the, uh, the shorter acting a drug, the more addictive it is, right? Crack is a lot more addictive than powdered cocaine because it hits harder and it wears off more quickly and you want to redose more acutely. So comedy, I would say, is an art form that I don't think there's any other art form where you're getting such immediate reinforcement as, uh, as stand-up comedy. So so it can be very, uh, very seductive and addictive in that way. The other reason, though, I think comics are sad is uh, – it does. I sometimes wonder if there is something fundamentally unhealthy about comedy and that you are training yourself to, to, um, to in some sense value yourself based on how much laughter you get, right? Based on the reaction you're getting from the audience. I mean, if you look at sort of the cliche that's at the heart of, you know, most philosophies and religions is that happiness comes from within, but you're as a comic, you're reinforcing precisely the exact, uh, opposite lesson, which is that no happiness comes from the audience laughing at you and essentially telling you through laughter that they approve of you, that they love you, that they like you. And so I do think that you can, you can get into this mindset where you're, I think all humans look for approval from the outside. I mean, we're social animals, but I think it can heighten that for comics. Um, and also there is the addictive aspect where, you know, you're used to this high of laughter and regular life can start to feel a little bit dull in comparison. So, uh, yeah. So <laughs> I think a, a lot of comics do struggle with, uh, with, with depression, um, you know, various forms of, of psychological suffering. Maybe that brings us to the mushroom work and how that might be applicable as you, as you go out talking to people about psilocybin mushrooms. Um, do you hear much interest from your fellow comics with this? Yes, I do. I mean, so the mushroom cure is, it's not stand up. It's, it's, um, I would call it comedy. It is comedy, but it's really more of a theater piece. It's me just telling the completely true story of how, you know, I had really debilitating obsessive compulsive disorder for many, many years. I'd, I'd seen all sorts of specialists, but on, you know, every possible prescription medication. Uh, and I really mean that. I mean, all the SSRI antidepressants, antipsychotics, uh, lithium at one point, everything that could possibly work. You know, the psychopharmacologists are just throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what would work. And the answer is nothing. Nothing was working. And then I read this study. To date, still the only study of psilocybin or actually any psychedelic for OCD. Uh, this is out of the University of Arizona. Uh, where they they gave a small number of volunteers psilocybin, and they found that yeah, it was quite effective with OCD. It was a very very small study, and they weren't really looking at the long term effects of it. Uh, but uh, it turned out that at least one subject in the study they kind of followed up with, or I think he might have proactively followed up with the study uh, the researchers. Anyway, six months later, this person was still basically symptom free, and everyone in the study did see a pretty significant reduction in symptoms, sometimes fairly short lasting, but. Um, but I read that study, you know, for, at this real low point with my OCD. And at that point, I did not have much psychedelic experience. 
but I figured, well, I don't have anything to lose by trying this. So I, uh, I tried to cure myself. And, uh, and so that's what the mushroom cures. It's the, it's basically the story. The show opens with me reading that study, that study. And, and then what happens next is, is the uh, show. It's a 90 minute show. So it is a comedic show, but it's also pretty dark. Uh, I don't shy away from really depicting my suffering in a very open, vulnerable way. Um, I think a lot of people who see the show, you know, they'll, people often come up and say, yeah, I've never seen anyone be so open about their struggles on stage or off stage. So, so there was laughter, but there is often, you know, sometimes audience members will cry and, and, uh, and I certainly try to really go back to those dark times in, in the performance. So uh, a lot of my fellow comedian friends have been supportive and have seen the show and, um, and, and, you know, have had positive responses to it, but, it, but it is a different sort of thing. and. And my agenda, I don't know if I love that term, but my my goal maybe, <laughs> uh, sounds a little less Machiavellian in that show, it's not laughter. I mean, I, I, I want people to enjoy themselves. Uh, and the laughter comes because there are ridiculous and absurd situations that I recount. And OCD in and of itself, I mean, it's a deadly serious disease. Uh, 15% of people with OCD attempt suicide. You know, there's this sort of popular conception that OCD is, well, it's, you know, it's this sort of lightweight form of mental illness, and that's just not the case. In fact, the prognosis in many, in many, uh, by many, many measures for OCD, it's, it's worse than depression. So, uh, so it is a deadly serious disease. Uh, but also it is kind of ridiculous and absurd. There is something comedic about repeating these, you know, rituals again and again that aren't doing anything. So, um, so yeah, so my, my goal in the mushroom cure is not to make people laugh. I, I, I want them to laugh. I want to enjoy themselves, but really to take them through those experiences. And hopefully really the ultimate goal is to have them have their own experience, uh, their own emotional experience, because you know, I, I'm, I'm performing now in a the theater I'm doing in, in New York City. It's a hundred and I think it's 65 seats. <clears throat> and so, you know, of 165 people, not not that we always sell out, but l- let's say we it's a sold out show, you know, as well, statistically, 2% of the population has OCD. Um, now, I think it's probably higher in New York, but the, the point is the majority of people in the audience are not going to have OCD, but many of them know someone with OCD. But even people who don't have any firsthand or secondhand experience with OCD, I think the struggle that I recount is in some sense universal, which is the struggle of really, you know, trying to gain some freedom from ourselves. And by that, I mean, I think all of us struggle with developing patterns of behavior and thought, um, maybe at a very early age, maybe unconsciously, but we develop these patterns because we think they're going to protect us. They think we think they're going to, um, to keep us safe in some way or help us avoid suffering. And they may do that in the very short term. Like someone with OCD who engages in a ritual, they will feel better right after the ritual. Their anxiety will go down, but it may only go down for 10 seconds or 20 seconds and they need to repeat the ritual. And I think regardless of whether you have OCD, that pattern of doing something that may help in the very short term, but ultimately causes a lot more pain than whatever pain you were trying to avoid in the first place. I think that pattern is universal. And I think I illuminate that in this show. And so my goal is for people to, to really see that, maybe even see it in themselves and, and connect to that, uh, that universal suffering, but also the possibility of redemption. Now in the show, I talk about trying to achieve that through psychedelics, but 
ultimately it's about having some sort of experience that connects us to something beyond ourselves, I think, uh, which for some people could be religious, but doesn't have to be. It, it could be anything. It could be nature. It could be, but finding something, some way to break out of our, um, our sort of regimented, stagnated um, patterns of thought and behavior. And so that's really what I'm going for in that show is, is to give people an emotional experience uh, that they can relate to in some way. So what was it like for you to write this show, switching gears from comedy and also trying to get these really deep personal experiences into something that other people could relate to? Yeah, it was. So I didn't really know what I was doing because I, I don't have an acting background. I, I, I have since started uh, taking a few acting lessons, but at the time I'd never done any sort of acting and I didn't really realize I was writing ultimately a play in a sense. Um, so when I first started you know, while I was going through these experiences, you know, it really was life or death at times. There was a sense that I might not survive, that I might, you know, suicide might be how this ends. But there was also a sense of if I do make it through these experiences of trying to cure myself with psychedelics, I have to tell people about this because even as, as I was going through it, I, I knew it was a pretty amazing story. The actual events as they were unfolding to me were pretty remarkable. So, when I did survive, you know, and I wanted to tell people about this, I first started trying to do it in more of a stand-up format. And I realized quickly that that wasn't going to work because there's just too much story there. Stand-up, there's an obligation to to make the audience laugh, you know, at pretty regular intervals every 30 seconds or so. And that limits your ability to, to tell a lot of stories. So I realized this wasn't stand-up. And so then I just sat down and I didn't actually write it. I just started talking through it uh, into a voice recorder. And it came out, you know, I've written a lot of other stuff since. And I have to say this in some ways was the easiest thing I've ever written because the story itself has just a very natural arc to it. There's a very clear beginning, middle and end. And I, and I knew what the story was, just the way the events unfolded. And it just kind of poured out of me. So I wrote it pretty quickly, uh, polishing it and then, you know, cutting it down because th there were a lot of experiences, a lot of psychedelic experiences and making it into uh, a 90 minute show that, that took a lot of work and I was aided greatly by, uh, I started working with a director after I'd been telling the story for a couple of years named Jonathan Libman based in New York, who's just really a genius. And I don't use that term lightly. And so he was, he helped a great deal in terms of editing the thing down, but, uh, yeah, writing it, I think in a way, you know, now that, now that the show has been going on for a while and, and, you know, actors have seen it and they've often commented, wow, you know, you're really, you're so vulnerable out there, you know, how do you do that? And I think the answer is ignorance. <laughs> I think the fact is I didn't really know what I was doing. I just knew I had to tell the story. So I didn't hold back. I didn't try for much craft or artifice. And I think a trained actor might have in some ways maybe shied away from it a little bit or tried to shade some of the, the suffering with more craft. And I think that gives the story. I mean, if you look at the, the reviews, which have you know generally been positive, but some reviewers have commented that there is a certain uh, rawness to the performance. Um, so, and that's something that, as you know, I've become more polished as a performer. I, I've taken pains to make sure that stays in there because I want people basically when they see the show, I don't want them to think, "Oh, we're seeing." you know, someone telling us about something that happened years ago, I want them to feel like, wow, this is happening now. This guy is experiencing this stuff now. And, uh, and that's, you know, that, that's, um, I think that also comes from the fact that this is a true story and one that connects to me. So I really, in writing the story and in telling it, I try to put myself back in that place and just kind of re-experience it. 
That does make sense because it does feel like it's one of the most powerful parts of it. And one of the reasons I think it's so important to spread because we did that uh, psychedelic storytelling tour that was an open mic across the country. Yeah. And I was fascinated to hear how often OCD came up with stories that were really, really powerful and unexpected. Um, and and the one of the interesting parts to me was, you know, with some sometimes with psychedelics and mental health stuff, they can just really make that problem be much better more quickly. Um, but that wasn't the case, it seemed like, with most of the OCD stories. It was people who knew that this was going to be a mountain to climb. And I remember one young woman, it was you know, 20 sessions or something, and she finally took a mega dose of variants, and this will be the one that, that solves this for me. And it was. Wow. Um, but it was very rarely a one time and things are better. It was more what you're talking about of working towards a goal and knowing it's going to take a lot of work to get there. Yeah. And well, and to be fair, I mean, you know, the way I approached it was not <laughs> an intelligent way to do it. I basically, I did have precisely the, that view that, oh, this is going to be a one-time thing. Like it was really this, you know, actually a very OCD way to approach it, which is like, well, if I just control all the variables perfectly, if I have the right drug, you know, the, the right type of mushrooms, take the right dose in the right setting with the right mindset, I'm going to get the right outcome. I'm going to cure myself. Um, and, you know, I think psychedelics, certainly you do see that sometimes, you know, especially some of the actual published research coming out for, you know, MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for end of life anxiety. People really do have these life changing experiences, you know, with one or two or sometimes three journeys. That was not the case for me. Um, and in fact, I think part of the reason the show is entertaining and has some drama is because I, I didn't, you know, I was doing this uh, either with this, it was my my girlfriend at the time who I talk about quite a bit in the show, who was a psychologist who had sort of unintentionally and unexpectedly cured her own clinical depression with mescaline containing cacti. And she's, I was sort of her unofficial research subject. So some of the journeys were with her, but some of them were alone. And I was doing, you know, a lot of research chemicals, 2CE, uh, 2CT7, 2CB, all of this stuff, uh, different dose levels. I was doing it in a, in a pretty frantic, desperate way. I mean, I was tripping every week, every other week, high doses, uncontrolled environments. And not surprisingly, I had some pretty harrowing uh, experiences. And um, But I think it is sort of the beauty of psychedelics where one of those cliches that ring true to me is they don't give you what you, you want, but they do give you what you need. And in my sense, in, in my, in my case, you know, the sense I, I, I eventually came to was that I couldn't control this stuff and it was really about surrender. Um, and without, you know, getting into all the details of the show, one of the most valuable things I got from psychedelics was not just the understanding, but the visceral experience of surrendering of, you know, of being on, say, a very high dose of mushrooms, being terrified, trying to fight it, trying to control it the same way I would do with, you know, with the OCD. OCD is something you have a thought you don't want, an obsessive thought, so you try to get rid of it by engaging in a compulsive ritual. It's all about control. And having this experience on psychedelics where I realized, well, if I try to fight this, if I try to control this experience, I'm going to be in hell, maybe even literally hell. Uh, so, the choice here is to is to surrender, is to let go and to trust that somehow I'll make it through this. And having that experience of surrendering and letting go on psychedelics was was critical because then gradually I, I was able to to do that when I was not on psychedelics. 
but it was, it, it was certainly a, a long journey for me and, and an ongoing journey. You know, the show is called The Mushroom Cure because that's what I was looking for. But it, I don't want to spoil the show for anyone, but suffice to say, uh, it was not a perfect cure for me. Um, you know, the OCD is a lot better, but I still do struggle with obsessive thinking, uh, perfectionism, some of the sort of more subtle manifestations of, uh, of obsessiveness. Um, so it's, it, it, it's, it was a long road to get the recovery I've had and, and the road continues. So you probably get asked this a lot, but what advice would you give to other people out there who have OCD and are intrigued by these things you're talking about? Do a lot of drugs. Do all the drugs you can get your hands on all the time. Uh, no, that, that would not be my advice, though. Uh, candidly, that is sort of what I did. Um, you know, I, I, I did go, I don't want to say overboard, but I I was desperate. And so I really did try everything I could get my hands on. Uh, my my advice would actually be the opposite, it would be not to do what I did, but to do this in a more considered, uh, intelligent way. So were I to do it again or advise anyone else? Well, the first thing I would say is realize that, yes, psychedelic um, psychedelics do show a lot of promise with a range of conditions, but there's two caveats there. First of all, with OCD specifically, there's only been one completed study to date. That study I read out of the University of Arizona that was actually published in, I believe, December of 2006, and it was a very small pilot study, as I mentioned. There are now, encouragingly, two studies that are, I, I think they're enrolling subjects now, or they will be shortly, a follow-up out of the University of Arizona with the same researcher, Francisco Moreno, and uh, Yale is doing uh, some work or is going to begin shortly doing some work. Uh, I believe these are both, by the way, um, backed by Hefter and USONA. But but anyway, so there are two studies that that will hopefully be published within the next couple of years. But right now, there's only one very small study. But there is also a fair amount of anecdotal evidence that that uh, psychedelics can be helpful for OCD. Having said that, I mean the thing, and people do ask me for advice often, and, and I tell them, you know, realize that. And I'll talk in a moment about how, if you are going to do this, the more intelligent way to do it rather than the way I did it. But the the ultimate caveat is psychedelics. They're not like other other drugs, other substances in that, you know, alcohol, cocaine, you're going to get a fairly reliable effect. Uh, it may be somewhat changed by your mood and by the setting. But, you know, generally, if you have, you know, six glasses of wine, you're going to feel a certain way. If you, if you do, you know, a gram of cocaine, you're going to feel a certain way. Psychedelics, it's wildly variable, even, even controlling as much as possible for set and setting. So the caveat is really, you can do everything quote unquote, right. You can have a good setting. Uh, you can go into it with a good mindset. Um, you can know the, you know, the substance you're doing, its purity, um, its potency, and you can still have an unpredictable and potentially very challenging experience. So there's no guarantees with this stuff. Having said that, I don't think it's crazy. If you're suffering from OCD the way I was, I don't think it's crazy to uh, to try this route. What I would say is the best practices there is you want to replicate as closely as possible the protocols that are being used in the current wave of, of studies. And those studies are not really, they're not really psychedelic therapy, they're psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And I think that's an important distinction. This isn't a case of, you know, uh, of, of researchers giving subjects psilocybin or, or MDMA or LSD and sending them home. This is 
the the psychedelic experience is embedded in a broader context of therapy. So people are typically meeting with therapists multiple times before the drug experience, multiple times after there's a lot of support for integration. So that's what I would try to replicate. Uh, one way to do this is there is a, a community of underground psychedelic guides. Michael Pollan has made a lot of people aware of this now with his, his new book, How to Change Your Mind. I actually recently worked with a guide in the Bay Area on a, on a, um, a guided psilocybin journey. I shouldn't say psilocybin because it wasn't pure psilocybin. It was, it was psilocybin containing mushrooms. Uh, and I found it to be very helpful. So that's one route. If you can find someone like that, um, you know, that would be the first choice, I think. Obviously, that work is underground, and so it is hard to find people like that. If you can find someone like that and you are you know, set on trying this, again, I try to replicate what you read in these studies. So um, one possibility is there are therapists who they won't take they, – they won't administer psychedelics to you, but they will work with you before and after. Um, Ingmar Gorman here in New York has uh, the Center for Optimal Living. Uh, which supports people in their psychedelic experiences. He's not an underground therapist. He actually, he, he's conducting some of the MAPS trials now, but he will, after the fact, help people integrate. So that's one thing you can, one resource potentially. Um, you know, even if you can find someone like that, though, having even just a, a therapist, maybe one who doesn't have a lot of experience with psychedelics, you know, you can give them some of the studies, maybe have them read Paul's books so they understand a little bit and so that you have someone who you can kind of talk to about the stuff afterwards. Uh, and ultimately, you know, the, the old cliche set and setting, I think that really does hold true. You don't want to do this stuff if you've gotten some particularly devastating or, or upsetting news. Um, you want to do it in, in a, in a, in a, in an environment that's going to be conducive to you letting go. You obviously doing this, you know, in public at a party would not be optimal if you're looking for therapeutic effects. And of course, know your drug, know what you're taking. Uh, you know, know its potency. And, and that may mean, uh, you know, acquiring something from a reputable source, trying low doses, you know, a few times to figure out the right dose. So I, I guess if you were to kind of wrap all this up, it's don't, again, don't do this the way I did it in a sort of hell-bent frantic way. Really take the time to set yourself up to have the best experience possible, which may still be a challenging experience. But I think if you, if you control those variables as much as possible, you uh, certainly increase the likelihood of having a positive outcome. And uh, and then the last thing I'd say is, yeah, this is not a silver bullet. Again, I, I mentioned earlier, the show is called The Mushroom Cure. That's what I was looking for. I would not consider myself completely cured from OCD. There's been pretty dramatic improvement, but I would be realistic in looking at this as this is something that can be a key piece of your recovery, but it has to be supported with other things. So I still do other, you know, other practices. I meditate regularly. Um, I don't see a therapist regularly now, but I have, you know, since the mushroom cure experiences and ultimately lifestyle changes, all of that stuff can be very helpful. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think in the right circumstances, psychedelics can be uniquely helpful for OCD and a, a range of other conditions. I would be curious after doing the show so many times, how much pushback you got from either members of the audience or maybe even uh, people from the professional community that were worried about these things that you're talking about? Yeah, I really haven't. I'm actually somewhat surprised how little pushback there's been. There really hasn't been any from audience members. There's been one of the early performances I did of the show. Uh, I got a particularly scathing review from someone who just was against, just was not open to the idea that 
uh, psychedelics could help anyone and and in the review accused me of glorifying drug abuse, which I mean you've seen the show is clearly not what I do, but that was a that was a rare outlier there. Um, you know, I, I think there's a recognition that I think there's a recognition even among people who may um, may not have a lot of experience or any experience with psychedelics that the current paradigm for treating mental illness just doesn't work. And this, I could go off into a whole rant here, but with, with OCD, you know, the best data we have is about half of people with OCD don't respond to, uh, to current pharmacotherapies. They don't respond to SSRIs and that sort of thing. And the half who do respond, they typically see only about a 25% symptom reduction. So most people with OCD are not helped significantly by current medications. Now, cognitive behavioral therapy can be extremely helpful for some people, but there are plenty of people like myself who have what's termed treatment-resistant OCD and nothing really works. So I think there's an understanding, a growing understanding and acceptance that we need to explore new treatments. I mean, OCD is, it's devastating and depression can be devastating and addiction can be devastating and PTSD can be devastating, just to mention a few of the conditions that are now being researched with psychedelics. So um, so yeah, I, I was, and still am somewhat surprised at how open people are to, um, to at least learning about this, you know, not that my show is primarily educational. It's, it's, it's an aesthetic experience, but, but you have to be, I think to appreciate the show, you have to be at least open to the idea that yes, psychedelics can be helpful. And, uh, yeah. And, and it seems like most people are now. Hmm. And so it, it's a show that really plays off the audience. How did the show evolve for you from the beginning until where you are now with the responses from the audience you felt? I, I would say the evolution of the show. Um, so I started out doing it in comedy clubs, uh, not so much as a show, just kind of telling certain, you know, episodes. And, and the response was good. But what I found quickly was it was very hard to get in all the narrative that I wanted to get in a comedy club where people expect to laugh, you know, at, at regular intervals. So, um, so what I, I guess what I'd say is over time the show, and, and so then I started kind of going in more of a really trying to just communicate the experience as accurately as I can. And as emotionally, honestly, as I can, I know we talked about this earlier, we're just kind of really putting myself back in there, the rawness of the experience and that, and that, you know, is not something that's probably going to fly in a comedy club. So it started moving to theaters. And so over time, I'd say the responses changed where before it was more of just a funny show. I think now it still is a funny show, um, if I do say so myself, but there's also a depth and a, and a pathos to it. I don't shy away from my suffering. And so, you know, the quickest way I could put it is people always laugh during the show. And again, I may have said this in, in our earlier segment that I don't quite recall. So they always laugh. Um, but but you also I, I should clarify that some there there may be some people who aren't going to laugh, but most of the audience is laughing, you know, th regularly throughout the show. But there also are some tears uh, among some audience members, and in a sense, that's more rewarding for me because I feel like all right, I've given them a real emotional experience. You know, I do just straight ahead stand up most nights at different comedy clubs in New York or San Francisco or L.A. wherever I happen to be, and, and I love doing that. I love stand up, um, but. But this show to me is about really giving people a, a deeper, fuller experience. And yeah, I've been gratified because audiences really are willing to go there with me. I think they, uh, they respond to the honesty and the rawness and, and, uh, and relate to that. For the future of the show, where could people see it that'll be soon? And, and what other plans do you have? 
We're playing in New York right now at Theater 80 St. Mark's, which, as the name implies, is on St. Mark's Place in the East Village. Um, so we're just doing it once a week, week right now. We're doing it at on Fridays at 730. We may have some Saturdays sprinkled in. Um, and, uh, and we're going to be there through early September, through September 7th. After that, this particular show may be retired. Um, I'm going to be moving on. The reason I'm only doing it once a week now is I'm really focusing on writing a new show, uh, that will likely be premiering in San Francisco beginning early October. I would tell you what that show is about, but I don't know yet. The only way I can write something, and this was true of The Mushroom Cure too, the way, the way I did it first. So I started, as I mentioned, I started kind of telling some of these stories in comedy clubs. And then I realized, okay, this is more of a theater show. So what I did is I applied to a festival, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, not having written the show at all. Um, you know, it's a true story. So I knew what happened. I had an idea of what I want to talk about, but I hadn't really, you know, hadn't didn't have any sort of polished material and uh and just you know ground it out you know over three or four weeks before that deadline you know i think it's part of the like i said the ocd is dramatically better but i certainly do uh perfectionism is something i struggle with um and i think one of the um one of the results of that procrastination can often stem from perfectionism because it's like, well, if I can't get it right, I don't really want to do it. And so I am a terrible procrastinator, especially when it comes to writing. And I found, I've done other shows since The Mushroom Cure, and I found the the only way I can really buckle down is when I have a date, when I'm like, all right, I have to go on stage at this theater on this date. Crap, that's in three weeks. I better get started. So that's what I did this time. I signed a contract to, to, do, to do a show in San Francisco starting early October, knowing I didn't have a show, but also knowing that, uh, that that's the best way I'm going to get a show. So I don't have a title. Uh, I, I think psychedelics will be part of this show. I don't think it will be as psychedelically focused as The Mushroom Cure, but I think I'll probably touch on some of my ayahuasca experiences. Um, I, was in, I was in Peru a little bit more than a year ago. Um, and drank 10 times over the course of 16 nights. And so definitely have some stories from there. But, uh, but yeah, so my focus is likely going to shift away from the mushroom cure in the very near future. I say likely because, you know, who knows if, if I get, uh, enticing offers from new theaters and new cities, I, I, you know, I enjoy doing the show and I'd certainly bring it back. But for now, at least through early September, the show is playing in New York. Uh, the mushroomcure.com will always have, you know, current tour dates. Oh, and I might as well mention we do have, the show is going to be in San Antonio. It's November. I don't remember the exact dates, but it's basically the weekend before Thanksgiving. It's like that Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Maybe it's November 14th, 15th, 16th or something along those lines in mid-November. So as of now, those are the only plans for the Mushroom Cure. Um, but I'll, I'll certainly be be doing, uh, you know, be talking on stage and in various forms and saying different words uh, for the foreseeable future in different places. I look forward to seeing more. And uh, what the, the final question would be, uh, when The Mushroom Cure comes to be uh, filmed, who would be um, – and, and they're going to be a, put a big A-list Hollywood actor right, right. Uh, instead of you. Um, would, do you know who that would be? <laughs> who would be the – who would be well, you know, as so in terms of celebrity comparisons, in terms of just my appearance, I get they range from Jeff Goldblum is one I, I, I get quite a bit. One of the less flattering ones, though, I'm a big fan. Uh, the more flattering ones. Who do I get? I get um, Hugh Jackman. I get sometimes. Um, yeah, I would, I'd be happy with any of those. But, you know, I, also, I think you'd want someone a little bit 
kind of, you know, intense and maybe a little bit unhinged because certainly as you've seen the show, you know, there are, I, I, I don't shy away from showing my, my rather unhinged moments. So yeah, I, the person came to my mind was a young Jack Nicholson. Jack, yeah, off. that would be, <laughs> yep. He could definitely pull it off. Well, Adam, thank you so much, uh, both for this conversation and for all the work in The Mushroom Cure. I think it's a really important piece of work that opened a lot of people's eyes. And I just want to say thanks for that. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lex. 